Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your mercy. We are grateful for your incredible and wonderful grace. And we thank you, God, for the scriptures that point us uh, to your grace. And we thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign uh, and that you are a redeeming God. And that you have given us, through a long line of people who needed a Savior, that you have given us a Savior. So, Lord, as we look at uh, the second part of that line today, we ask that you would uh, bless both the reading and the teaching of your word. Forgive the sins of the teacher, Lord, for they are many. And we ask, God, that you would um, make your people uh, your people. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, come on in, folks. There's a handout that uh, Elaine has. And uh, let me... I don't know how to give you guys the handout. Basically, if you just open up to uh, Matthew chapter 1 in your Bibles, you'll be able to uh, follow along just fine. Okay. Well, we said uh, last week that a major theme of Matthew's gospel is... Last week. The prophecy. The of prophecy. We got prophecy. That's that is get, definitely getting in the right direction. Uh, it's fulfillment, fulfillment, and pr- it's the fulfillment of prophecy, uh, and all, uh, and, and and really the fulfillment of salvation history, the f- fulfillment of God's work uh, in the world, uh, as uh, from the fall of creation, uh, working towards everything culminates in. Christ, the climax of salvation history, uh, from creation through the fall, through Abraham and Moses and David, through the prophets, through all of it. And, and Matthew gives us uh, the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, 14 generations, he says, uh, times three. So 14 generations from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, from the exile to Jesus. But it's not. It's kind of strange. Uh, kind of strange. It's um, I mean, he lists 14 people, uh, 14 generations, but he skips a bunch that are listed in the scriptures, in 1st um, first, first, Second Kings, in 1st uh, in Second Chronicles. The timing doesn't quite add up, but what he's uh, doing is he's going to great lengths to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of salvation history. He's also going to great lengths to show us not only that Jesus stands in the line of the Redeemer, the Messiah, as the son of David and the son of Abraham, but that he is uh, coming to, uh, that he is from a line of people who need him, <laughs> who need a Savior. Um, that, that he's going to great lengths to show that the genealogy of Jesus is not morally pristine, ethnically pristine, even though there was this commandments all through uh, the Old Testament that you should not intermarry. That was, a, that was a call to purity. It um, certainly could have, in broken hearts, led to uh, racism of some kind, but it was, it was not that. It was a, a call to, it was just a, a symbol of purity. Uh, and the genealogy of Jesus is not, uh, more, is not pristine, even faithfully. Uh, there were many kings that are listed in that genealogy that were terrible kings. And, and my, you know, the joke is, well, you know, you and I could have done a much better job than God did about uh, you know, putting this, the genealogy of, of the Messiah together. And, but the, the purposes of God are not disrupted by the failures of God's people. And I, for one, take great comfort 
in that. And I hope that you do as well. But particularly, I think, as the rector of a parish, the church of um, the body of Christ, uh, who is uh, the rector, but also very imperfect. Um, Very. Just ask my wife and my children. They will tell you that I need Jesus. All right, so we begin this um, this part of the genealogy in, in Matthew uh, 1 with, with uh, verse 7. And uh, we have a reference to David. Oh, let me read. Let me read the genealogy. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amos. Amos, the father of Josiah, the great reformer. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, that was the exile, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. All right, wake up. Um, after I, I just, that was, is there anything more boring than reading a genealogy? And you think, you read that, and you're like, why is that valuable? And, and it's interesting, I can remember uh, one time, and it's just, I don't know why, oh, I know why, it's because I was, I was actually writing a blog post for going through the Bible, and the one I was getting ready to write was on Chronicles, it was a, one of those, it's like nine chapters of, of, of this, and um, I was like, what am I going to write in a blog post? And I was uh, at my children's school, I think it was Caroline, she was in elementary school at, in Birmingham, and there were just, the elementary school was on a very busy road, and cars and cars and cars and cars and cars going past. And it just struck me, like every one of those cars has a story. Their life is just as important to them as my life is to me. They, they have a, a responsibility to the Lord. They have a family for whom they, are, uh, whom they love. They have a brokenness and redemption in their life. Everybody, that I don't have any idea who those people are passing me by, um, by on, the, on the road has a story. And I just remember thinking, that's how I need to read the genealogies. Like, these people are not, most of them, are not important to me, except for the fact that they are in the line of the Messiah. So thanks be to God. He can keep up with that, not me. But, um, but every one of them has a story. And so we wanted to actually look at the stories of a few of them, like we did last week, to see... Uh, what exactly is um, available uh, to us uh, in the person of Jesus? What is available to us in the grace of Christ? And we have um, the, one of the most scandalous stories in all 
of Scripture right up the front. Again, Matthew seems to go out of his way. Now, if before David and Bathsheba, God has made a covenant with David. David wanted to build a temple. He said, gosh, I live in a house of cedar. Look at the, the Lord lives in a tent. You know, like, I got to build him a house. And God says, I never asked you for a house. I love my house. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to keep somebody on the throne of Israel from your line forever. It's just incredible, like just unbelievable promise. It blows David away. Um, he also says, well, you've killed a lot of people. That, there's that too. But um, God will always be faithful to his promise to David, even uh, though David and his descendants are not faithful to God. Like, really not. Like, really, really not. And so David and Bathsheba is, is, I think, one of the um, sort of primary examples we think of, of of unfaithfulness to God. And I just want to, um, uh, to point out that, that in fact, he, Solomon was, was not the son of the tryst. Um, he, they, he was the second son that they had. The first son died. Um, but it's impossible when we read Matthew's genealogy not to think of it. Because he doesn't even say Bathsheba's name. He says, by the wife of Uriah, who was a Hittite. Not, he was faithful to the God of Israel, but he was not an Israelite. He, Uriah was a, a, a Hittite. Presumably so with Bathsheba, but I don't know. We, in, in other words, Matthew wants us to remember what happened. Like, we know whose wife she should be. And what you did, David. So, God has made this incredible promise to David, but David just gets kind of bored, y'all. He just kind of gets bored. So this is um, 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers in all Israel. Isn't that a condemning statement? In the spring, when the kings go out to war, David sent his general, Joab, but he stayed back. Why? He had allergies? <laughs> to work, maybe? Yeah. Um, you know, things were good for David. Have you ever had a time where you're like, I've kind of achieved what I've been working towards, and so now what? I don't really need to go fight another battle. I'm just going to stay back and do this paperwork and let you guys kind of do the heart. I mean, like, it just, it just seems like he's kind of abdicating his responsibility as king, his enthusiasm. They so Joab destroys the Ammonites. They besiege Rabbah. David remained in Jerusalem. Those well, psalms aren't going to write themselves. Pardon me? Those, Those psalms, psalms aren't going to write themselves. Right. Well, they're usually at a great... Uh, Turmoil, and we get one of the great ones out of this out of this episode right here, which I will talk about in just a moment. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. Again, like he's not in intense negotiations. You know, he's just kind of bored. Things are going fine. He's just taking a stroll on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. Now it's. I, I mean, I think David is completely at fault here. It is it's a little hard to read whether the author implicates Bathsheba as well. 
Like, did she kind of know? She, you know, you rise off fighting wars. She's kind of lonely. It's hard. It's hard to say. I'm not. I, I think ultimately, she was um, taken advantage of. But it's just kind of hard to know. It's kind of written in a way that we, we're left with a lot of questions. And, and not, not just that one, a lot. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't that Bathsheba? Like, he knows who it is. Come on. Isn't that Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> Like, hmm, I wonder if she likes tea. No, I, she, there was, um, and, and, you know, it's just, it's, I don't know, I don't know what the politics, I don't know what the, I mean, could she have said no? Could she even have said no without, but, I mean, her husband was like one of his 30 best men. So, I mean, presumably she could have said no, or I'm going to tell my husband, or something, you know, like, I don't know. I don't mean to implicate her. He's, he's at fault. He's the king. He's, he's the son of God. The, uh, the one after God's own heart. Now she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness and afterwards she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. So David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Why? So he'll sleep with his wife. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. And then he said to Uriah, hey, I have an idea. Why don't you go down to your house and wash your feet? Talked about feet last week. (laughs) So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king uh, followed him. So, I mean, David's just buttering this guy up. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants. He did not go down to his house. When it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home. David questioned Uriah. Hey, hadn't you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? Uriah answered David. No, it's unclear. Again, what's the question? Is Uriah onto things? Does he actually know what's going on? He suspects. Why? No, I have this beautiful wife. Did you? I know you can see the top of my house from, from your top of your house. Why, why, are you, why am I the only one you call home? I don't know. Does, does Uriah know? We don't know. Uriah answered David, The ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house and eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, King David, I will not do this. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next then David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk. He went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servants, but he did not go home. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. In other words, David says, okay, I can't solve this. In the letter, he wrote this, put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. Y'all, that is nasty. Nasty. And the truth is, if you are into comparing sins, you are not going to get to that more than likely. I mean, God, I hope not. (laughs) You know, like, you are not going to 
uh, match David's treachery. You're not, hopefully, going to have an affair, but that's much more thoughtful than you're going to kill the spouse and try to cover it up. Oh, my word. It's a dateline story. Like, they found his remains in the, you know, in the desert or wherever. Like, all these things that are happening now. It's kind of crazy. Also true is that you are not going to match his righteousness. You're not going to match his devotional fervor. You're not going to match his unique love for the Lord. And certainly you're not going to match his covenant relationship with God. Now, the uncomfortable truth about David but one to which we can all relate is that he is a faithful man who did some very unfaithful things. Now, again, I don't think we're going to be as faithful and I don't think we're going to be as unfaithful. But we all know what it is to be faithful and, be un- and to be unfaithful. To do unfaithful things. So in that sense, this is all of our story. You remember how David kind of wakes up and comes to his senses and realizes it's just massively, it's unbelievable. How did, how did he not understand what he was doing? It's just unbelievable to think of that. But the prophet Nathan is spoken to by the Lord and then Nathan goes and tells David the story. Hey, there's a guy that has a bunch of sheep and he lives next door to the guy who has one sheep but the guy with a bunch of sheep had a visitor, so he stole the one sheep and slaughtered it and gave it to his guest. And David says, that man better die. That is terrible. And Nathan says, thou art the man. David breaks down. And um, when, when Nathan says, you're the man, he doesn't mean like, you know, you know how we would mean it now. He means, that's, he's, thumbs down. You are the man. And this is where we get Psalm 51, which we read on, um, I believe, um, Maundy Thursday while we're stripping the altar, or maybe afterwards. Uh, It is an incredible psalm of repentance. There's a little bit of offense to it, because he says to the Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. Like, what about Bathsheba and Uriah? But what the sense is that David said, all sin is sin against God. All sin is sin against God at its fundamental. There are consequences in other people's lives, but fundamentally all sin is sin because it is is a transgression against the nature and the character of God. That's what sin is. uh, Behavior in that way. And this is where uh, David is begging God for forgiveness and for purification, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. In Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Let me read just a little bit of it. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Let me tell you, that's a pretty... It's either extremely faithful or extremely arrogant request. It certainly um, shows us that he trusts the character of God as a forgiver. And again, I just always like to highlight when we see this in the Old Testament, people say, oh, the Old Testament God is angry in the New Testament. Listen, David appealed to the only one who could forgive, which is the one he had sinned against. 
just like you and me. Blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt, and cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion. My sin is always before you. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. And I'll go, I am guilty, Lord. I am guilty, and I am dependent completely upon your mercy, is what he's saying. You desire integrity, you teach me wisdom. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. That last part is actually part of the Lutheran liturgy. Yeah, and it's part of our liturgy too. But yeah, it makes sense to me um, that it's part of the Lutheran liturgy because Luther would have prayed this prayer a lot. Yes. It's one of the like regular pieces that you go through like the liturgical processes. Yeah, so for the folks tuning in online and the folks listening on the recording, Josh is saying that it's um, part of the Lutheran liturgy, um, and, and it is it's 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 very Lutheran because it's uh, it's very Pauline and, and Davidic. Yeah, but it's but for sure. Now, what's your question, Susan? Do you think that David knew that God? that God would always forgive him. He knew he had a special. So do you think he had knowledge ahead of time that no matter what he did, he was going to be forgiven? So Just, so Susie, you're asking, like, did, did he um, take presume upon yeah. the mercy of God and just do whatever he wanted because he knew he would be forgiven? I don't think so. I don't think that you could write Psalm 51 and, uh, and just say, no big deal. I know you're, you're, my job is to be the king and to do what kings do, and your job is to forgive. I don't think David. I think if David, if Nathan said, you are the man, and, and he was presumptuous, I think he would have killed Nathan. Oh, okay. I don't, I don't think. I, th- I think he was just bored and, and lazy, spiritually lazy. I think it's a picture of what happens when we get spiritually lazy. Would, would God have fostered that deep relationship with somebody who would act that way? Who would have been presumptuous about that? Would well, God have you know, chosen him for that kind of relationship if he knew that it's the kind of person he was going to be? So, so would would God have fostered that relationship with someone if... if um, you know, I, I think that what's amazing about David, what distinguishes David from someone like maybe King Saul before him or even his son Solomon after him, is it David when he when D- David sinned boldly, right? But but when he was aware of his sin, he repented faithfully. He didn't just kind of wander off and say it was no big deal. Like he really was sorry. He tr- entrusted himself to the mercy of God, and I think that's what is meant by saying that he's a king after God's own heart. That he is he he, he is. Um, it's not that he's pure and pristine like God is, but he is um, always after God's heart. He's always pursuing God's own heart. I think that's, that's how I understand it anyway. Even though, uh, and perhaps especially when he is failing. Because honestly, like that's a part of what we know about God and what we love about God is that he's a redeemer. How do we know he's a redeemer? Because we've been redeemed. Why have we been redeemed? Because we're sinners. Like, that's... 
Adam, if Adam hadn't sinned, we'd never know God as Redeemer. I'm not saying he did the right thing. I'm saying God makes, takes a mess and makes it a miracle. All right, so David is a faithful man who did some very unfaithful things. After Uriah's death, he brings Bathsheba into his harem and he marries her, calls her out of her, uh, out of her mourning. Um, this is not a biblical approval of adultery or of polygamy. Happens a lot. Both of them happen a lot in the Bible. It never works out well. It never works out well. So she's pregnant. The child of the tryst dies. He's very unhealthy. That's the judgment of God. <clears throat> um, but then, and, and what, and then they have another child, which is Solomon. And what's remarkable to me about that is that, I mean, David had a bunch of wives. God could have chosen any of them. He had a bunch of sons. He could have chosen any of them. He chose Solomon. Again, you and I would have done a much better job. Like that doesn't make any sense. Why would you why would you choose the, to be the the in the line of the heir of, of David's covenant promise, the Messiah and Savior of the world? Why would you choose that relationship? Because you're a redeemer and you're gracious. That's why. That's the only thing I can think of. He had David had many sons, and he could have made any of David's sons worthy. He could have made Solomon come from from Michael or any of the other ones. He chose Solomon, the son of the wife of Uriah. Now, it doesn't mean that all is, all went well, because it God said and Nathan through Nathan, this is going to be the unraveling of your dynasty, which stinks because you're generation one of your dynasty. And it was. And there was some incredible magisterial, that's probably not the right word, but just a massive um, dysfunction in David's adult children's lives. Absalom tried to overstage uh, a coup, went in and slept with his concubines. Again, come on. This, it, it's, you think HBO's bad? Like, just read the Bible, you know? Um, David is only the second king. The first one didn't work out. This is the one. That, remember, he got rid of Saul and said, now I'm, I'm, this is a king after my own heart. And yet this scandal with Bathsheba begins to unravel the Davidic uh, monarchy. Um, David is a shining example, not of purity, but of one who depends desperately on grace. And it makes me think of like, I mean, if you've ever known an addict who really just clings after sobriety and yet has some spectacular relapses, but just wants so much to have sobriety. I've certainly known people like that. They're addicts. Now, some addicts, they have relapses and it just completely gives sobriety up. But, but David highlights that God is and always has been a God of, a God of grace and forgiveness. And that's what, that's what David's life shows us. So his son Solomon, born in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, and um, he, he's named Solomon, but the prophet Nathan calls him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord, uh, which is amazing. So David dies and Solomon inherits the throne in 1 Kings chapter 2 and 3. 
when Solomon dies. Oh my goodness. I'm being called by somebody. That's so weird. It's not even showing up on my watch. I have no idea. Should I answer it? So I can tell you about your car's warranty? Yes, Lord. Yeah, oh, really. That's what it is. <laughs> warranty? Yes, your warranty is about to expire. <laughs> like seven years ago. Okay, all right. Um, so Solomon essentially uh, repeats and even magnifies David's sin in a way uh, such that he is uh, like the addict whose heart doesn't come back. Now, which is, again, incredibly interesting, I guess, uh, uh, noteworthy, because he is the wisest man ever. <laughs> Remember the incredible scene when he um, initially becomes the king, and God appears to him in a dream and says, I'll give you whatever you want. And Solomon, in the wisdom that he had at that point, said, I just want you to give me wisdom, because this is a bigger job than I can handle. And, he says, and God says, you, you could ask for, for anything. You could ask for wealth. You could have asked for territory. You could have asked for women. I'm going to give you all those things. And I'm going to just endow you with more wisdom than the world has ever seen. He wrote the book of Proverbs. I'm going through Proverbs. It is amazing. It's amazing. Like it just, if you haven't gone through Proverbs, you can't read too much of it at a time. Like read maybe a chapter at a, uh, at a time. Because it's just so rich. Just, just kind of. Suck on it. It's just, it's awesome. Um, he was wonderful and wise. He was extraordinarily wealthy. Like this is a gold, what did it say? Gold and was like copper uh, in, in Israel at that time. Um, something like that. Reigned, he re- and he reigned in a time of peace. He, he, was, um, he was not always at battle like David was. He wasn't exactly peaceful. He was certainly willing to enslave foreigners. But he was, um, for all intents and purposes, a really good king. Except, <laughs> bugaboo, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Oh my God. What a <laughs> You say what a life. I mean, <laughs> no thank I mean, obviously, these aren't wives in the sense that we understand wives, because, I mean, you have one, you get dinner with your husband like once every three years, you know, like it's, um, which might be fine, you know, some. Um, what, what, here, here, how, what is acceptable in culture? Why did a king have so many wives? Just so that they would have so many heirs. It would be so difficult, I mean, that's, so it would be so difficult to stamp them out. It's kind of gross, really. It's kind of gross. But what is acceptable in culture is not always right before God. Real important. Real important for us. Well, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Susie, not like that. Okay? <laughs> not like that. First Kings, I think it's Second Kings, actually. Chapter 11. Nope, First Kings, chapter 11. King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them and they must not intermarry with you because they will turn your heart away to follow their gods. And to these women, Solomon was deeply attached in 
quote unquote, love. <laughs> he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 wives who were concubines and they uh, turned his heart away, I guess so. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. He was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God as his father David had been. Solomon followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites. And Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. And unlike his father David, he did not remain loyal to the Lord. It's a really sad end to a really great king. But part of the line of our Messiah. Now, you probably have heard one of, I mean, there's lots of really famous proverbs that Solomon uh, penned. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, and so many others. But one that gets a lot of traffic is raise up a child in the way that they should go. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. And I personally take great comfort in the fact that his son Rehoboam was a disaster. <laughs> he was a disaster. Rehoboam, 1 Kings chapter 12 through chapter 14. He, Rehoboam is, is noteworthy not just because uh, he was Solomon's son. Solomon was kind of hard on uh, the... the um, the ones from Shechem, is that right? Yeah, from Shechem. Shechem. And when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard that Rehoboam had become king, um, let's see, they summoned him, Jeroboam. Your father made our yoke harsh, he says to Rehoboam. You, therefore, lighten your father's harsh service and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. He's not asking to get out of it. He's just asking for a little... little to loosen up a little bit for his people. And Rehoboam says, go away for three days and then come back and I will give you my answer. And he goes to um, his father's advisors, old men at this, at this point. He says, what should I do? And he said, if you, if you will lighten their load, they will serve you forever. You will have faithful servants, loyal servants. And then he goes to his buddies Young like him, and they, he says, what should I do? And they said, this is amazing. This is what you should, the young men who had grown up with him told him, this is what you should say to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter to us. This is what you should tell them. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Although my father burdened you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with barbed whips. And so Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day. And what happens is this splits the kingdom. From the, Judah and Benjamin in the south and the ten tribes in the northern kingdom. And so Israel, that, that's, we have Judah and then we have Israel. And Israel is in what we call the northern kingdom. Uh, everybody says, I mean, is that, I mean the, it, unity was that fragile. We have no part with David, they say, and they make their own country, which ends up becoming Samaria. And, and the, we you know, have the Samaritans in, in the New Testament, and they're uh, sort of... What, uh, became, what became Samaria? The Northern Kingdom. Okay. They kind of fizzled out, really, over the centuries. 
they were um, exiled as well. Very Machiavellian advice. Very Machiavellian advice. 2,200 years too early. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. All right. Um, so just a few others, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Manasseh, I want to talk about a little bit. Uh, Jehoshaphat's in Second Chronicles has this beautiful prayer. Jehoshaphat was a good king, so they weren't all bad. Jehoshaphat was a really good king. I only know about, I, I first knew the name Jehoshaphat because I thought it was Jehoshaphat and Yosemite Sam in the Bugs Money commercial would jump up and down and say, jump on Jehoshaphat. I guess that's, but it's Jehoshaphat, I think, has this beautiful prayer. He's, they're under attack, and he says, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I love that prayer. I should pray that prayer a lot more uh, than I do. That's in chapter, 2 Chronicles 25-12 is that prayer. It's a great prayer. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Hezekiah is also a good and faithful king. He made one really bad mistake. And that is the story. That's in 2 Kings um, 18 through 20 and 2 Chronicles 29 through 32. But he says, um, the Assyrians come on a, on a visit and they're at peace. And Hezekiah gives them the full tour. Shows them the palace. Shows them the fountains. Shows them the treasury. And the prophet says, uh, so where, where'd you take them on the tour? He said, I, I showed them everything. Even the treasury? Yeah, yeah, even the treasury. So you better get ready for war. And they cart him off. Um, then Manasseh, so he's a good king. He just made a really bad, silly mistake. Manasseh. Um, Manasseh was, was one of the worst. You know, King Ahab was married to Jezebel. That, that was northern kingdom. But Manasseh was just as bad. Um, in Kings, 1 Kings 21, it, it doesn't say anything good about Manasseh. He, he just actively uh, worshipped other gods. He built up altars in the temple in Jerusalem uh, to other gods. He did terrible acts. He shed innocent blood. He led the people of Judah away from Yahweh. And in 2 Kings it says, the end. <laughs> and he, he died and is buried. Second Chronicles uses actually the same words, like the same paragraph. The chronicler used the one who wrote Kings often. But it says that he inserts, the chronicler also inserts that he was, uh, Manasseh was taken off by the Assyrians with hooks and that at the, um, in captivity, Manasseh earnestly prayed to the Lord. He uses the word earnestly. Who heard his prayer and restored him. And in our morning prayer service, Canticle 14 is the prayer of Manasseh. Which I believe is in the Apocrypha, uh, for my Catholic friends. It's considered apocryphal, but it has been retained. Some manuscripts included at the end of Second Chronicles. And it is just beautiful. It's Canticle 14. O Lord, ruler of the hosts of heaven, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of all their righteous offspring, you made the heavens and the earth with all their vast array. All things quake with fear at your presence. They tremble because of your power. Your merciful promise is beyond all measure. O Lord, you are full of compassion, long-suffering, abounding in mercy. Um, do not let me perish in my sin or condemn me in the depths of the earth. For you, O Lord, are the God of those who repent. And in me, you will show forth your goodness. I love that. It is amazing sometimes how hardship brings clarity. 
And um, we don't have much time. It reminds me, my friend Frank Limehouse, my mentor, I've talked about him many times, but he um, he told a story, and I don't remember if it was him or just somebody else, but there was a, uh, a basically a death row, like famous murderer who was converted and asked to be baptized right before he was executed. And he did it. Now, again, I don't know if it was Frank or somebody else, but Frank was telling the story. And they were telling the story at a clergy conference, and some of the clergy, one of the clergy particularly, kind of went harumph and said, that must have been some dirty water. And Frank said, you think it's dirty in the water you were baptized in? Manessa was a terrible king. He repented and the Lord heard him. Because he's a gracious and forgiving God and he always has been. You can look at Shealtiel and Zerubbabel and the book of Ezra uh, and the rest. If you're really nerdy, you can go find them. But um, there's not a lot. But I'm going to skip over that and just say that the fifth and final woman in the genealogy is the Blessed Virgin, Mary. Not a prostitute. Not a Moabitess. The one who would carry in her virgin womb the culmination of salvation history. She's the mother of God. The Theotokos. God-bearer. And she is the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14, which says, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. And here, even here, Matthew is telling us about fulfillment. That the crux of history is all given to us in Jesus Christ, in his birth. Which is, now, the authors couldn't have known this, but that's where the Julian calendar turned, at the birth of Christ. So every time you write the, you write the, uh, the date, you testify to the birth of Christ. Mary... Very different from the other women there. Uh, I do believe that Mary was a sinner in need of grace, just like all the rest of us. I don't believe that she was uh, perfect. I do believe that she was a virgin. Um, and, and, her, and the birth was, the conception was miraculous. Um, I've been in the cave with many of you where the Lord heard from the angel. It's stunning. It's just stunning. Um, to be in that spot. But in her womb was the fulfillment. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. He should be called God with us. So it's a remarkable story. And the next week we finish up this first part of the study of Matthew with uh, the birth narrative in Matthew, which is different than the one in Luke. It actually is told from the side of Joseph rather than from the side of Mary. So Luke focuses on Mary and Matthew focuses on Joseph. So we'll look at that next week. Thank you. All right. God bless. Thank you. Wow. Applause. Stop. Really stop. Please. Stop. All right. Go to church if you have not. Or my folks, my friends, uh, tune in in just a minute on our YouTube channel. Bye. Hi. It's like saying hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know how to say it. You're late so much. He's gone. <laughs>